Let's pray together. Father, we bless you for this opportunity that we have had, the privilege that we have had to come before you in a time of worship and song, and we ask now that you would help us to come and to worship you in your word. God, to respond in worship, to hear in worship, to delight in what we hear from the scripture. God, to receive it as it is in truth, as we've been reminded, the word of God that is infallible, inerrant, and fully authoritative in our lives, and sufficient for everything we need for life and for godliness. Father, we pray that you would help us to see and to see much of and savor what we see of Jesus today. God, that our hearts would be both exhorted and encouraged, and that our hearts would be drawn more deeply to be appreciative and thankful, God, grateful for everything you are for us in Christ, and and having seen him, God, and delighted in what we have seen, God, that we would respond in a way that is rich and full in living for him, faithfully following him to the very end of our days. God, help us in coming to your word today, and we ask God all this in Jesus' name, and for his sake, and for our good, God. Amen. Well, I'm very thankful to Paul for preaching for us for a couple of weeks, thankful for um, Gordon Taylor coming last week, and I feel like I have just gone absolutely flabby, and not literally speaking, but as a spiritual metaphor, well, maybe literally speaking too, but uh, that's not a new thing really, but um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the time away from the pulpit was uh, nice and refreshing to hear other people preach and things such as that, um, but I tell you what, you'd think, um, <clears throat> you know, Janice asked me this morning, uh, something like, well, I don't know, just the typical pastor wife thing on Sunday morning, something like, how's it going or whatever. And I said, I've been off for three weeks. And she took that to mean I was great and everything was good. And I said, no, no, it's terrible. No, <laughs> it wasn't terrible, but uh, it sure is, a, it sure is a, a strange thing to get back into the, into the pulpit. We are, are thankful and pray the Lord would bless us as we, as we come to his word Uh, together today. If you have your Bible, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. I would ask you to be praying for next uh, Lord's Day as well. Uh, Next Lord's Day is Easter uh, Sunday, and it's always the question on what to do for Easter Sunday. Do you break away from where you've been in a book of the Bible and preach just an Easter sermon? Uh, But I really think that next week's text will lend itself well uh, to uh, an Easter Lord's Day. And so I ask you to be praying praying for that. Um, There is much in our culture today that is fed by a common desire to feel safe. People want to feel safe. We establish laws, many of which have at their root or their primary purpose Helping the public be and or feel that they are safe. 
from many things in the world that may potentially bring them harm. We have government agencies that we have built and constructed over the years to help us feel or actually be safe. We have the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, that helps ensure the safety of our food and drugs. Fancy that. It's right there in the title. They, they watch over our food, what goes into it, how it's made, how it's put together, how it's packaged, how it's kept. Uh, there are laws we experience um, in the chicken business uh, on a regular basis. Somebody shows up to see if there are proper temperature controls on the food that we are serving. I was buying some food yesterday at Walmart, a big old slab of ground beef, and right on the outside of it, it said something like cooked to the temperature of 160 you know, plus degrees, because that kills things if they happen to be in there. At least that's the idea. Uh, we have uh, we have safety seals. You know, so much. There's so many seals on your bottle of Tylenol now that you know if you have a headache, if you didn't have a headache by the time you started opening it, you'd have a headache by the time it was over, or wrist pain, or whatever, because you got to twist and turn and peel, and then you got to sit there and pick that little thing at the top forever, and you just chewed off your fingernail yesterday, so you can't you can't do any picking on that. So you try to stab it through the top, but you've got to have a serious sword to get through that thing at the top. You're safe. Now, you're going to have a headache for like, you know, ever, but you're safe, all right? Um, there are child safety features on all kinds of things. The, the kids, it's, it's not an uncommon thing in our, in our suburban to be driving around. We get somewhere and we park, and Katie in the back goes, can somebody come up with the door? The child safety latch is on. You know, you can't even get out of your own car. You know, you used to lock people out of your cars. Now we're locked in the car, you know, and then there was the... Uh, I don't know if we still have it. We don't have it on our... Do we have it in the Suburban? Do the windows just go down halfway in the back? Uh, remember those Remember those days where the window would just go down halfway, you know, so the kid couldn't crawl out? Let's make of a gap. How fat is that kid? I mean, he could get through there if he really wanted to. I couldn't get out of that. I can't hardly get out of a whole window going down. But, but we have all these little safety features. The Transportation Safety Authority now thinks they have to pat down little children in wheelchairs. You see that thing going around a little while back? You know, the mother was all upset because her, her child who was in the wheelchair, like a two-year-old or whatever, they wanted to swab the chair. They wanted to pat down the kid. And the mother was like, you've got to be kidding me, you know. But, be that as it may, there's all kinds of little safety checks. Uh, I remember a few years back I was traveling and I, I, ha- I, lost, I lost my little Swiss Army fingernail file knife. Yeah, I was going to do some serious damage with that. I was going to stab the pilot like 5,000 times and he still wouldn't even know what had hit him. And so... You know, you wonder, you wonder sometimes of the, the over-the-top nature of some of the laws. But at the root of it all, I think there's some kind of a desire, reaction from people. They want to feel and know that they're safe. Local police and law enforcement seek to, it's written on the side of their cars all the time, protect and to serve. We have laws that keep us safe in our cars, speed limits, seatbelts, headlights. Politicians prey on these fears, promising us a better tomorrow, safer schools, a safer world, etc., 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 etc. Now, whatever you think of those safety measures, and I hesitate to even share some of those stories because some of you, the only thing you're going to think of for the next hour is your beef with the seatbelt law. All right? 
You're still so bitter that you've got to wear a seatbelt. I remember when we started wearing seatbelts in the car, my dad was so mad about the seatbelt law. I still don't really like it. But that's not the point. All right. The point is, is that whatever you think of those, and so many more that could be mentioned, there is in our world a gnawing sense of unease. There's a gnawing sense that all is not right, and we want somebody to fix it. And the world provides us with many saviors who will make us feel safe. Or at least they will try. Our study in the book of Revelation confirms to us the truth that in fact all is not right in the world. Most recently in our study of Revelation in chapters 12 and 13 we have found the presence of what we have entitled a battle for the cosmos that is presently going on all around us. And this is a battle in which we have seen beings like the dragon and the beast and the false prophet all raging against God and raging against humanity and primarily raging against the church of Jesus Christ, the woman and her seed. And it is a battle filling the hearts and minds of men with fear. For the unbelieving among us here, or the unbelieving in the world that we will encounter, This sense of angst or fear ought to be what drives them. It ought to be what drives you to be asking greater questions and seeking greater solutions than can be found in policies and laws made by men who themselves are also held captive to the same fears. You think of the comfort that comes in the heart of some people and the thought that if we could just elect a new politician, we'll be better off. We've all, most of us, have lived long enough to know that one politician comes after another, after another, after another, and the same problems continue to proliferate in the world around us. That's because most of the problems are beyond the ability of man to solve. I'm not saying it doesn't matter who you vote for. I'm not saying it doesn't matter who runs for office. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that righteous people should be installed in places of authority. That would be a wonderful thing to have a Daniel, would it not? And we don't have that today. It's a wonderful thing to have it. But even Daniel can't stem the tide of the angst of unease in the world in which we live. The Jewish people thought they could just get a new priest. Priest after priest after priest. One dies, another comes. One dies, another comes. One dies, another comes. So God does what? He installs a king, a priest on Mount Zion that will never die. And He rules. And He reigns. And He brings the solution to the unease in the world. But that's to get just a little bit ahead of where we want to be at the moment. So for the unbelieving, it ought to be stirring them, this sense of unease, this sense of continual unease, one day after another, one year after another, every couple of years, every four years after another. It ought to be creating in their hearts a sense of, maybe I should be asking bigger questions. Maybe I should be asking for a a better Savior. Maybe I should be looking for bigger solutions than just the temporal things in the world. For the believing... The temptation to fear ought to remind them of the one who has conquered their greatest enemies and has made promises to them that in the midst of the battles of this world, there is peace that is readily made available for them. 
text that we used this morning, moving through our time of adoration, was Psalm 46. Let me read the entirety of it to you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Which means, it's a musical term, which means to pause. To stop and think about what's just been sung. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. I want you to hear that. God is in the midst of His holy habitation. The city of God. I want you to keep that image in your mind of God being in the midst of the city. Revelation is going to draw from that. For the comfort of the church. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. But the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. And then the invitation. Come. Behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Salah. In the midst of the chaos of the world's sea, the turmoil of the endless, or seemingly so, endless war on the saints, wielded by the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, is to be found in our text today as an oasis of peace. In the midst of it all, there's this fresh spring that makes glad the city of God, a river of gladness in the midst of the storm. John's vision is lifted up once again to the heavens, to the throne where there is a place where all is well. There is a common occurrence in the book of Revelation where juxtaposed against the vision of the chaos of earth, there is a vision of the calm and peace and joy of heaven. Perhaps calm is the wrong word because it's often a very noisy place, uh, but it's a place of peace and a place of joy. The book of Revelation itself starts out with a vision of the exalted Christ that precedes the the, the earthly vision of the churches in chapters 2 and 3, where there are judgments that go on in the churches, where Jesus threatens at many points. He is about to come and remove the lampstand. He is about to come and, and to deal a death blow, perhaps, even to the church. He is calling churches to repentance because they are tolerating sin and apostasy and heresy in their midst. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we're taken back, you remember, to heaven. John is caught up to the heavens where he sees the throne room of God and he sees the the Son of God, the Lamb approaching the throne and he sees the sevenfold Spirit of God surrounding the throne. He sees the, the seraphim and the cherubim and the angelic majesties and he sees the elders and he sees the countless hosts and they're worshiping God. This is where we, we hear things like, worthy is the Lamb to receive 
power and honor and might and glory. And then we're taken in chapter 6, chapter 6, back again to the earth where there are judgments of seals that are poured out upon uh, the world. In chapter 7, we're taken back up into the heavens to see the 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel uh, summing up the totality of the people of God, this countless multitude that cannot be numbered by John. We see them secure and safe in heaven. Before, we're brought back to the earth in chapters 8 and 9 where there are the judgment of the trumpets that are blown one after another and the the cataclysms that result from that. In chapter 10 and chapter 11, we're taken back up into heaven to see visions of the security and the peace of the people of God. In chapters 12 and 13, we're brought back to this passage. We've been working our way through the battle with the enemy, the battle for the cosmos, the the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet that are waging war against Christ, against the church, the woman, and her seed. In chapters 14 and 15, we're going to be taken back up into the heavens to see glorious declarations about the security of the people of God. Before, in chapters 16 to 18, we're brought back to earth again for the judgments, the final judgments of the bowls, where the wrath of God will be finished. Only then to be taken back into heaven in chapter 19 to see visions of heaven, followed at the end of chapter 19 by more judgments where Jesus descends from heaven with a sword coming out of his mouth, descending from heaven on the white horse with a crown on his head, faithful and true, and he comes to judge the nations. All this then culminates in a glorious vision of heaven in chapters 21 and 22. And that, as... um, You know, they would tell us on the news, that's the rest of the story. And that's the end of the book. We're not brought back for more judgments after chapter 22. So that's really what is happening in the book, this, this, uh, this, this, this juxtaposing of pictures of, of salvation and judgment, salvation and judgment, salvation and judgment over and over again. Well, I want to take you to Revelation 14. If you still have that open, and I want us to go from the battle with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet in chapters 12 and 13, and take a look up in the heavens and see what we find. Revelation chapter 14, we're just going to read today verses 1 through 5. Then, after he sees those receiving the mark of the beast in chapter 13... He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice that I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Put forth in this brief passage is a glorious truth 
a doctrine that we ought to be able and should settle our minds and troubled hearts in. It is the doctrine that we are going to term and has been termed throughout many years, for many years, the perseverance of the saints. What are the saints to do in the face of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet? What are the saints to do in the midst of all the unease of the world? So many things opposing them. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Now, we could see chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation as as an explosion, an exposition, an expansion of what Jesus means by the tribulation you're going to have in this world. In many ways, chapters 12 and 13 has taken us back to the garden, and it takes us all the way to the culmination of the end of the ages. What kind of comfort is offered to the saints in the midst of the battle for the cosmos, in the, in the midst of the tribulation that is brought on by the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, in the, in the face of this persecuting power of the beast, in the face of the heretical apostate teachings and influences of the false prophet, what kind of hope and help does the church have? will enter, if you will, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. God wants us to have our eyes in the midst of that tribulation turned upward where we see another group of people. In contrast to the people of the world who have the mark of the beast that are put upon them, in contrast to those, stands another group of people in the heavens, sealed with the securing mark of God put upon them. It says of these people that they are there with the Lamb on Mount Zion. 144,000 of them having the name of God, the name of Christ, the name of the Father written on their foreheads. They're engaged in worshiping God with a new song. They have a new name. There's a whole new place for them to stand. They are secure. It is they who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is they who have followed the Lamb wherever He has gone, and they are redeemed as the firstfruits of God and the Lamb. It is they that in their mouth no lie is found, for they are blameless." Here we have the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints embracing in our text two parallel truths, both of which we need to see. One is a truth that is for our encouragement. And the other truth is a truth that is for our exhortation. So just think about those two things. One truth is for our encouragement, and the other truth is for our exhortation. And both truths together sum up the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Let me give those two truths to you. Truth number one is this. That truth of absolute, the absolute, unshakable, unmistakable, divine sovereignty of God. God has sovereignly chosen a people for His own name. He has put His seal upon them. He has marked them. They are His. It is unmistakable. They belong to God. But there's a second parallel truth in this particular passage. That first truth of the divine sovereignty of God is for the encouragement of the church in the midst of trial. 
But the second truth, a parallel truth, running side by side with it, is for the exhortation of the church in the midst of tribulation. And that is the parallel truth of human responsibility. Human responsibility. You've heard of those two truths before. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We, these, are, these are two truths that oftentimes are, are told, we're, we're told that they are, they are in tension. They're held to be in tension. They should be held in tension with one another side by side, being reconciled in the eternal decrees of God. But God is absolutely sovereign in determining who will be His. But those who will be His are absolutely responsible in making sure that they maintain a faithful adherence to Christ throughout all of their lives. So you see, one doctrine or one truth for our exhortation or encouragement and one truth for our exhortation. God has called us to a glorious inheritance in the saints. And this inheritance is sure and certain. And the contemplation of it is to be for our encouragement and strength in troubled days. Take heart, Jesus says, I have what? Overcome the world. But at the same time, there is another truth that we need to hold as an exhortation to our hearts, that only he who perseveres to the end shall be what? Shall be saved. How do you hold those two things together? Well, Paul did it, for example, in Philippians chapter 2. He said, work out your what? Salvation with fear and trembling. With a sense of holy, reverent awe. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. All the while knowing that God is what? At work within you both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. Well, let us see how this doctrine is laid out for us here in our text. And how it should serve for us as a great encouragement and exhortation to hold to Christ in the midst of the battle for the cosmos. Well, let us observe from this passage two things. Only two. The first thing I want you to notice with me is that the church is secured by sovereign love. So if you're making notes, that's the first observation. The church in this text is secured by sovereign love. And secondly, though, a second observation, we notice that the church is secured by selfless living. She is secured by selfless living. Well, let's think about the first of these for a moment here. The church secured by sovereign love. Notice with me verses 1 through 3 of our text. John says in in terminology that is very typical of the visions that he has, I looked and then he says, I heard. John often sees and then he hears. Or he'll hear, and then he sees. But both those things are, are found in, in multiple visions in the book of Revelation. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on harps, playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne 
and before the four living creatures and before the elders, and no one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There are three things that I want us to notice in this first observation. The church secured by sovereign love. She, the church, in this text is given a new standing. She is given a new seal. And she is given a new song. She is given a new standing. She is given a new seal. And she is given a new song. And each of these new realities in her experience express the truth. That she is secure by sovereign love. She has a new standing, a new seal, and a new song. She has a new standing. Think of that with me for just a moment. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with Him, with the Lamb, stood the 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Think with me for a moment where the church is standing. She is standing with the Lamb. Now we've seen the Lamb before, have we not? Standing? We saw Him back in chapter 5. In Revelation chapter 5. In verse 5. This is when, when John is weeping. And the elder comes to him and said, Weep no more, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, John peers into the throne area, and he says, Among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The Lamb is standing before the throne of God. He is standing in a place of privileged authority because He has conquered and He is now able to open the scroll. He is the one who's given sovereign authority over all of history. And from this vantage point, this standing, He rules and reigns. Notice though, in Revelation 14 and verse 1, He is not standing there alone. John looks into the heavens and behold, on Mount Zion, in the city of our God, that picture of the Jerusalem to come, that picture of the holy city, the very representative picture of the people of God themselves. It says that Jesus is here standing on Mount Zion. It's, if you think quite an image, he's standing on the city. It's, it's almost absurd when you think about the, the imagery, but it's, it's not to be taken literally, but more figuratively or metaphorically. He's standing in the midst of the people of God with what? With the people of God there with Him, the 144,000. Now we've seen these before, back in Revelation chapter 7. And when we went through Revelation chapter 7, we saw them as the totality of all the redeemed throughout history. This is a picture of the multitude, that one new man, the Jew and the Gentile that have been saved and redeemed from all the nations of the world. And they obtain a new standing, a new place to stand. No longer are they standing with the dragon and with the beast and with the false prophet. No longer are they standing in the world. No longer are they standing outside the covenant of grace. No longer are they standing in the world without hope, without God, as Paul would describe the nations in Ephesians chapter 2. They have been brought what? They have been brought near. 
This whole image is made very vivid in the doctrine of justification in Romans chapter 5, where Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace and which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Access to what? Access to everything which at one point in time we were barred from. Access to grace. Access to mercy. Access to forgiveness. Access to the very throne room and presence of God. It's illustrated beautifully in the book of Esther in the Old Testament, is it not? When Esther, out of love for her people, puts her own life at risk, if you will, and rushes into the presence of the great king, and you just don't go see the king unannounced. And the king does what when Esther comes in? He extends to her the scepter that says she's safe and she's acceptable and she's brought near. And here you and I are plunging into the very presence of God. And how is it that we can stand there? How can we be there? We can be there because Christ is there. And Christ is the one who has given Himself for us. Christ is the one who has dressed us and clothed us in garments of His own righteousness. And He has ushered us into the presence of the King. Here, the church is seen to have a new standing. Beloved, you and I have a new standing with God. So no matter what happens in this world, no matter what comes your way, (laughs) it doesn't matter how many laws are passed in the world to keep you safe. You realize without the one who has established law itself, the one, as James says, lawgiver and judge, without Him on your side. Or as Luther would say, in a mighty fortress is our God, without the right man on our side. We're what? We're not safe. Doesn't matter how many security seals you put on that Tylenol bottle. Doesn't matter how much you try to watch what food you eat. Doesn't matter how many times you buckle your seatbelt or put another buckle on you. Buckles, airbags, all of it. I'm thankful for a lot of those things. Do you know what I'm most thankful for? I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus has brought me into the presence of God where I and all my brothers and sisters have a new standing. I stand in grace. Stand there. I cannot, I cannot be moved from grace. Jesus says, No one snatches them out of my hand, and the Father is greater than all. And no one snatches them out of his hand. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Let's just cut to the chase. Nothing! I remember hearing some guy preach on that when I was in junior high. He was a high school student. He was going to go into the ministry one day, so they thought they'd let him teach the junior high kids. Stop the madness! Youth-led Sunday services. Let me get off the boat. 
I used to lead in some of those. Scary. And he sat there telling all the kids, what can separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus? Nothing. Except you. Because you decided to get in, you can decide to get out. Classic Arminian doctrine. Coming through to the junior high children. This is a big book here, but let me read something to you. John Owen speaks to that very issue. Is God's will dependent upon man's will? That's what that young man was saying to those kids, that God's will for them to be saved was dependent upon their will to stay in. Notwithstanding, John Owen says, the undertaking of God on both sides of this covenant. Notwithstanding his faithfulness in the performance of what he undertaketh. Notwithstanding the ratification of it in the blood of Jesus, and all that he hath done for the confirmation of it. Notwithstanding the seal of the oath that God set upon it. They, I say, who notwithstanding all these things will hang the unchangeableness of this covenant of God upon the slipperiness and uncertainty, and I love this next word, the lubricity. Lubricated. It's kind of slippery. The lubricity of the will of man. Let them walk, he says, in the light of the sparks which they themselves has kindled. We will walk in the light of the Lord our God. Friend, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You have a new standing. Are you thankful for that new standing? Well, that's not all you have, though. You've got a new seal. We need to move on because time is ticking. And just like four weeks ago when I was in the pulpit last, it is my great enemy, it seems. We have a new seal. Not only have we been brought into the presence of God, we have been sealed and marked out as His own. It says that they have a new name. They have His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. Unmistakably, this is in contrast to the mark of the beast that has been placed upon the servants of the beast. And they have been lied to. They have been told that if they will sign up in his camp, in his army, and take his mark upon them, they will be safe. But friends, they will not be safe from the wrath of God to come. Because the wrath of God will fall upon all the ungodly for all their ungodly deeds that they've done in an ungodly way. But, those who have the seal of God, those who have received the name of Christ and the name of the Father put upon them. Those who have been brought into the household of God as the reward was promised in Revelation chapter 3 to the one who conquers. This is in the church in Philadelphia. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that 
that we have been chosen in Christ by God the Father from before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. And He's, he's brought us to Himself. And He has redeemed us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. We, Christ, we've received redemption, <coughs> the forgiveness of sins. And those that God has chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, those that God determined to save, notwithstanding what was told to little junior high children some 30 years ago in my life, it's all about what you wanted. Because you know the old phrase, Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't force his way in. Aren't you glad Jesus is no gentleman? And He not only knocked on the door of your heart, but beat it down! And came in and said, I am here. And He took you. And He sealed you with His Holy Spirit. And He marked you as His own. He gave you a new standing. He gave you a new seal. And one more thing. And this almost seems like, well, sure. He gives me a new standing. And He gives me a new seal. He gives me a new song. And I'm the only one. The church. We're the only ones that can sing the song. That's really cool. Look what it says. Look in Revelation 14. John says, I heard a voice. At first it's just a voice. It's a little indistinct. It's noisy like everything it seems in heaven. Um. <clears throat> Makes me think there must be lots of children in heaven. You know, yesterday it's like six o'clock or whatever, and the baby's gone, you know, pterodactyl moment or whatever, and Katie's playing the piano you know, with great passion. The kids are running around the house, and somehow I'm out in my office trying to go. Janice is, you know, going mad inside, and finally we come back in, and, and then Katie's done playing the piano, and in my own heart I go. Oh, I love her playing, but I'm so glad it's over. And then, and then what happens? It's Nathan's turn. Man, we're, we're having the noise at our house. Finally, about 6.30 or so, I declared as the father of the house, Piano is done. It's just done. I'll talk to your teachers. It's just over. It's just got to be done. It was just kind of chaos. It was, you know, happy chaos, but it was just kind of crazy chaos. The church is singing. They're making melody, not just in their hearts, but with their voices to God. And John hears a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. He, 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 he draws three strong and powerful similes to, to bring out the, the, the power and wonder of this voice. He says, it's like, it's like the sound of many waters. It's like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And with all that, they were what? They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one, hear this, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. We see a new song being sung in Revelation chapter 5 by the, by the creatures and by the elders, which are simply heavenly representatives of the earth the church. 
we see a song being sung in Revelation chapter 15, which serves kind of as like a bookend to this section here. It says in Revelation 15 verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Standing behind this singing of a new song is... Is, is a multitude of Old Testament texts where, where they sing, especially in the Psalms, they sing new songs in light of God's work of redemptive mercy. And standing behind the Psalms even is that great song that was sung by Moses and the people of God and, and Miriam and the women that, that was after the, the Egyptian armies and Pharaoh been thrown into the heart of the sea. What are they singing? The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. It's a song that we sing, rejoicing in the redemptive mercy of God. This this is one of the reasons why so many of our songs, every Lord's Day, speak about the redeeming work of Jesus. We're not new in making those things up. People have been singing about the redeeming work of God years and years and years. And we rightfully sing a new song. Because we are people who have been sealed with a new and secure seal. We are people who have been given a new standing in the grace of God. We are a people, beloved, that are secured by sovereign love. Now you can see how we could probably camp on that right there for a couple of months and just talk about that. But there's something else I want you to see in this text. It is not just that the church is secured by sovereign love, regardless of what she does. It is not just that God works out His will and His purpose in our life without our working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, never never think that somehow the ground of our perseverance is rooted in what we do. That is not the case. For as our confession rightly says, and I think it's a helpful reminder, that the perseverance of the saints, in paragraph 2 of chapter 17, the perseverance of the saints depends not upon our own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof, or the certainty and infallibility of our perseverance. It is what God has done in Christ Jesus for us in giving us this new standing and new seal and new song. It is what God has done that makes our perseverance certain and infallible. But, not to take away everything we just said by that, it is not irrelevant what you and I do. I want you to listen to the rest of the passage. A second observation. The church not only is secured, 
by sovereign love, the church is secured by selfless living. Notice in verse 4. What is said about this church? What is said about this church is it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Some would say that, well, because God has given us a new standing. God has given us a new seal and God has given us a new song. See, it doesn't matter what we do. Grace. Grace. It's all grace. As if to say that grace is an excuse for us to what? Sin. John Owen wrote, As well might we argue that it's unnecessary for us to breathe because God gives us breath. That doesn't work very long, does it? Some of us can't do it very long at all. Or that Hezekiah need no longer eat and drink because God had promised that he should live another 15 years. Grace, Owen says, does not annul our responsibility, but fits us to discharge it. It relieves, it relieves from no duties. Did you hear that? Grace relieves from no duties, but equips us for the performance of them. Grace doesn't let you off the hook. Having a new standing and a new seal and a new song should not make you a happy sinner. It should make you a passionate saint. One marked out by holiness. Notice the church is found to be made up of a particular group of people. I have termed them, in my thinking, as loyal covenanters, persevering disciples, and faithful truth-tellers. They are loyal covenanters, they are persevering disciples, and they are faithful truth-tellers. Now there is a great call for you and I when we hear this kind of a passage to take some real personal evaluation moments and think about who we are. We claim to name the name of Christ, and those who name the name of Christ and are faithful to Him and are true to Him, and those who name the name of Christ that one day will find themselves surrounding the throne of God are going to be the kind of people who are loyal to the covenant that has been made with them. Who are persevering in the path of discipleship, of following Jesus. And are faithful in the responsibility that they have to not lie, but to tell the truth. I want you to think about those three things with me just for a moment. They are loyal covenanters. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are 
virgins. Now, right off the bat, that's an interesting phrase. Does this mean that the only people that make it to heaven are celibate males? Again, if we read this as if it's just historical narrative, we might get that idea. This is not historical narrative. This is apocalyptic, visionary literature, and it needs to be understood as such. These, these 144,000 representative of the church in all ages, these have not defiled themselves, perverted themselves with women, for they are virgins. They have remained detached from the sexual immorality that pervades the culture around them. In the book of Revelation, so often the, 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 the evil city of the world, Babylon, that pictures everything that's opposed to God, is pictured as a city that is filled with immorality. In just a few chapters, we're going to be introduced to the great prostitute or the whore that rides on the beast. The picture of immorality and compromise was seeping in to the churches of Asia Minor. If you recall, the churches there of Ephesus and Sardis and Philadelphia and Pergamum and Thyatira and Laodicea. These churches were often influenced by false teachings and heresy that were brought in through the pagan religions that surrounded their culture. And one of the characteristic marks of Greek pagan idolatry was immorality. It was a sexually saturated culture. In the Old Testament, there is a picture of this that can be seen in the couple that would marry and when warfare would be going on, the husband was not to have sexual relationships with the wife. She was and, and he they were to be be separated. And there was a there was a there was a purity that was to to transpire in their relationship during those days. You might remember the story of Uriah when he is out on the front and David has had sexual relations with Bathsheba and he brings Uriah back and he tries to get Uriah to have sex sex with his wife. So whenever she's found to be pregnant, which he knows she is, he can have somebody to blame. And Uriah, remember Uriah, oh, I, I, I can't do that. And it's not just that it would be wrong you know, for him to do that and have that pleasure while the guys are out on the front. There is a, there's a covenantal obligation that Uriah had as a warrior, as a soldier, to not be engaging in those kinds of things that would normally be right with his wife. He is to remain apart. And here is an image of the church of Jesus Christ in the midst of warfare. And what has she done? She has waited for her husband. She has waited for the consummation of the battle. The battle to be done. The battle to be over. And then to be joined to her husband Christ as a what? As a pure virgin. Paul says... In 2 Corinthians, look there for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. A very helpful text, I think, to us here. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Here, Paul is, is viewing the church not with that Old Testament warfare imagery, but rather in a state of betrothal that we're pledged to Christ, that we're promised to Christ. And the idea being that one day we'll be presented to Christ perfect, spotless, blameless. This imagery is also found in Colossians chapter 1 in, I think, verse 22. Colossians 1 verse 22 uh, He has reconciled us in His body, the body of His flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Or the passage that we have used for these past few weeks in our benediction in the book of Jude. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Christ be majesty, dominion, authority. God has called us to be a people who are holy and preserved and kept from the immorality around us. We are not to give ourselves to the pagan idolatry of the world around us. We are to keep ourselves pure for Christ. You know, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if the Greek culture was the last culture in the world that was saturated with sex? Do you ever just get disgusted with the world that is around us. Are you aware of that? Are you consciously aware of the sexual saturation of our culture? You can't even sell Uncle Ben's rice on TV without sex. You, you can't sell food. You can't, you, you, you can't talk about hardly anything in our culture without some kind of reference to that which is perverse. It ought to trouble your heart. It, it will trouble the heart of the believer in Christ. And if it doesn't trouble your heart, you need to check your heart and think about where your heart is. I don't even want to sit here and talk about all the things that go on in the world, but it ought to be troubling to the believer in Christ. We are to be loyal to the covenant. We have been betrothed to a pure husband we have been promised to this one and we have said we will reserve ourselves while he is off at war fighting against the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and one day he will come and slay all of his enemies and when the warfare has ended <laughs> what do we have we have a glorious wedding supper of the Lord. We have a glorious feast that is made for us when the bride has made herself what? She's made herself ready and the groom has come and they are joined forever together. We are pictured in this passage as being loyal to the covenant that has been made between us both. But there's a second characteristic about the church here. She is shown to be filled with persevering disciples. I appreciated 
Paul's exhortation to us a few weeks ago about following Jesus. Where Peter is exhorted over and over, you follow me, you follow me, you follow me. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The exhortations in the Gospels seem endless to a faithful adherence and following of Christ by those who name His name. It's interesting to me to read from William Gurnall in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. He makes the comment, that perseverance is necessary because the promise of life and glory is settled upon the persevering soul. The crown stands at the goal, and he hath it that comes to the end of the race. He that overcometh, Jesus says, I will give. Not, not he that overcometh in a skirmish, but he that overcometh in the battle. Ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, you might receive, excuse me, you might receive the promise, Hebrews chapter 10, 36. There is a remarkable accent, Gurnall says, on that henceforth which Paul mentions, I have fought the good fight, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Why was it not laid up before? Yes, but having persevered and come near the goal, being within sight of home, ready to die, he takes now sure hold of the promise. Indeed, in this sense, it is that a gracious soul is nearer its salvation after every victory than it was before, because he approacheth nearer to the end of his race, which is the time promised for the receiving of the promised salvation. Then and not till then, the garland drops on his head. been reading, I think I've mentioned it, uh, with the kids. We're reading slowly uh, through Pilgrim's Progress again. It's been interesting to note that there are several points along the way where Christian gets a glimpse of the celestial city. He begins to get a glimpse of Emmanuel's land. He, he begins to get a glimpse of the places that are close to, to the celestial city. And then he begins to get a glimpse of the city itself. But it's not, it's not until he crosses the final river of death and comes to the city that he gains the fullness of reward. We even find some in the river of, of, of death on the way crossing to the city that don't make it. And they're lost forever. Because they were not faithful to what? To death. We are called, friends, we are called, you are called, I am called to follow Jesus. I will follow. I will follow Jesus. Anywhere and everywhere He leads me, I will what? I will onward go. I will follow to the very end. He who perseveres to the what? End will be saved. Did not Jesus Himself set the pattern of obedience up to and including the point of death? And Jesus calls us to do no 
less. We are to be persevering disciples. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Why? Because they have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. We belong to Him. But one final thing about this group of people in their mouth that says no lie was found for they are blameless. They are blameless. They are faithful truth tellers. How easy it is to succumb to the world's way of lying. You ever, you ever wonder how easy it is for some people to lie? You ever known somebody who was just a perpetual liar and you just like never believed anything they had to say? It's a very frustrating experience, isn't it? And you're like, you just nod your head. I don't know. You walk away and you're like, I don't believe a word they say. This is the way they live. They, they live with lies. This is why the book of Revelation says that liars don't go where? They don't go to heaven. It's like the little song that uh, we learned years ago. Revelation, Revelation, 21, 8, 28. Liars go to hell. Liars go to hell. Burn, burn, burn. Burn, burn, burn. Not a real happy song. <laughs> Got your attention. You were going to sleep there. Just <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Liars go to hell. People who live their life embracing a pattern that is opposed to truth-telling, they lie. They lie about God. They lie about man. They lie about themselves. They lie about this world. They lie about eternity. But one day the mouth of all liars will be shut. And they will have nothing to say. But those who follow Christ, beloved, are tellers of the truth. They speak the truth about God. They speak the truth about Christ. They speak the truth about the church. They speak the truth about the Bible. They speak the truth about man. They speak the truth about themselves. They are sinners in need of the grace of God. I need a new standing. I need a new seal. And I long for that new song. While the world walks around and says, where I'm standing is just fine. And they don't realize, like Edward says, they walk around on a rotten covering, not realizing that at any moment it could give way. But for the sheer mercy and pleasure of God, the sinner's ground doesn't break at that moment. But one day it will. One day, if you are here today and you are trusting in yourself, like the psalmist said in Psalm it was a 49 there, I believe we looked at today. He's seeking man to ransom him. If, he, if, you're, if you're trusting in man, if you're resting in the things that your own hands can do, it doesn't matter if you're here and you're old or you're young. If you trust in what you stand on, what you can manufacture, what you can do, one day that will give way and you will fall. And you will perish. And like Judas, you will fall headlong.
and you will go to a place prepared for you. But the church is to be filled with truth tellers. We are secured by sovereign love, but we are also, there is a sense in which we are secured by faithless, or faithful, I'm sorry, faithful living. We are called to hear that the battle, though it belongs to the Lord, the reward for the battle will only be given to the ones who fight to the very end. Augustine wrote that the promise is not to him that fights, but to him that overcomes. Remember over and over in Revelation 2? To him who what? To him who starts in the battle. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. Seven times. A complete number. Ought to be enough times to get our attention. Watson said the crown is set at the end of the race. And if we win the race, we shall wear the crown. William Grinnell in another place said... He that will be Christ's soldier must persevere to the end of his life in this war with Satan. Not he that takes the field, but he that keeps the field. Not he that sets out, but he that holds out in his holy, this holy war deserves the name of saint. John Bunyan sought to encourage his readers with these words. He said, friend, it is a sad thing to sit down before we are in heaven. And to grow weary before we come to the place of rest. And if this should be thy case, I am sure thou dost not so run as to obtain. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Run in such a way that you might what? Win the prize. Beloved, we are secured by sovereign love. But we are also called to heed that only those who have selfless living, only those who are loyal to the covenant, only those who persevere as disciples, only those who faithfully embrace and tell the truth will be found around the throne in that day. And you might sit there and think, well, I'm not too faithful. Maybe you've taken the encouragement a few moments ago to think about these things as they fall out in your own life. There are many times that you and I are not faithful to the covenant. There are many times that you and I do not persevere as disciples. In fact, you can probably stop for just a moment here and think back, and you probably won't have to think back very far, will you, to find the last time you were faithless to the covenant of grace that was given in your life. Maybe a time when you could have told the truth, but you were ashamed. Maybe a time that you could have told the truth about yourself or about the world. You had an opportunity to stand up for Christ. You had an opportunity to give an answer for the hope that you have, and you what? You just hid somewhere. Psalm 24 
that I had Paul read earlier. I want us to look at it again, and we'll close with it. There is here great encouragement, I think. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Here's the, here's the question. Revelation 14 is the answer. We saw who ascends. Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Those are the kind of people that, that stand in that place. I ask you the question. Do you have clean hands? Do you have a pure heart? Do you ever lift up your soul to what is false and do you ever swear deceitfully? I think if we're all honest, we would say, that just doesn't seem to be a picture of us. Not in perfection. He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. We long to be those kind of people. But if we're honest and we take stock, we will, we will have to admit. And we will have to come clean. And we'll have to say, God, that's just, that's just often not me. My hands aren't always clean. My lips, they have spoken deceit. I want you to see the Christ-centered nature of this psalm. When you hear that exhortation, you ought to be brought to a place where you see yourself as not being the one who would be on the hill. Hear this. So lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, lift them up O ancient doors, that what? That the defiled people might come in. No. That the king of glory may come in. Well, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Who is the faithful, loyal covenanter? Who is the one who perseveres in following after the will of God? Who is the one who is the ultimate faithful teller of truth? It's the Lord Jesus. He's the King of glory. He is the true worshiper. He is the one who ascends the hill. And he ascends the hill in absolute perfection. But he doesn't go alone. Remember the first thing we saw in Revelation 14? He brings his church with him. He dresses them in the righteousness that only he can provide. He seals them with his own name. And he gives a new song to them. So if you've gotten to the end of that passage in Revelation 14 and thought, well, that sounded so great at the start, but I don't think I'm going to be the one that's there. Then you realize that the faithful worshiper, it's not you. And you might sit there and think, well, today I'm doing pretty good. 
Well, there's always what? Tomorrow. There's always five minutes from now. There's always two seconds from now. And there's just right now because you're thinking you're doing pretty good and that's because you're proud. And so, so the whole point is the whole bottom falls out when we look at what? Ourselves. Grace does not give an excuse to sin. Grace calls us to live and pursue holy living. But in our pursuit of holy living, grace reminds us what? We're, we're not as holy as we need to be. And it drives us back again to the gospel. It drives us back again to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the loyal covenanter. He is the one who perseveres in following the will of God. He is the faithful teller of the truth. So we draw near to God through Him. We're reminded of that in preaching. We're reminded of that at this table when we come. We don't lay our own flesh down. We don't lay our own blood to kill or to, 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 to save or forgive anyone. Christ has done what? He has sufficiently paid for everything that would stand opposed in us to God. He has, he has, he has washed us of all those things that would keep us away. And we come and we take the bread and we take the cup and we proclaim again our confidence in the cross of Jesus Christ. We proclaim our confidence in the righteousness of Jesus. We proclaim our hope, the steadfastness of our hope in the gospel. And we do come and resolve at this covenant renewal to live more faithfully for him in the days to come. So let us come to the table with those kinds of thoughts in mind. Let's pray.